Welcome to Formation. Um, we are talking about prayer as a part of our conversations this year in discussing, I guess, coming back to some of the the core aspects of of spiritual practice within the Christian faith, and how at times when we go through process of reforming, reimagining, rethinking some aspects of our faith, uh, sometimes some of these practices that sit at the heart of the way we outwork some aspects of our faith can become a bit um, obscure to us. Maybe once we prayed a certain way and then we, um, across the course of time, either stop praying that way, don't know how to pray anymore or even what it is, or perhaps we're still in a place where we're like, yeah, nah, I've got it on lock. I am the best prayer you'll find. Uh, even for the people who really feel they know what they think prayer is, what I find is uh, the actual life of prayer is is not always as um, as rosy as the theory. And um, and so what we're wanting to do over uh, what we started last time, we'll continue this time and finish off the next formation is just three sessions. Uh, being able to have some honest conversations about prayer, what we think of it, uh, what we think about it, uh, maybe our challenges or questions with it, um, but also to dig into uh, what kind of uh, meaning and resource it can actually be for us in our spirituality. And so last time I asked Linda a few questions as our resident prayer. That's <laughs> very unfair, I'm sorry. But no, as, as someone who uh, has a lot of wisdom to share, uh, we had a conversation with Linda last time, um, just really around what prayer looks like and and in some ways wanting to open up the horizons a little bit. Uh, for some of us, if we've been in very uh, fixed, static traditions, we can have a set of ideas about something like prayer uh, that can often mean I have to pray like this or I'm not good at, or I'm not good at prayer. Um, and being good at prayer itself is such a funny idea that it's something you can be good at. Uh, so what we what we were doing I think last time was at the very least opening up the the borders a little bit to say there's a lot that's going on when we when we talk about prayer and what it is. Uh, Linda mentioned that phrase to desire prayer is to pray. That's what it was, eh? Uh, which is itself a beautiful idea. So what I want to do tonight is we're going to look at some of the different traditions in Christianity and the way that um, they have shaped views on prayer and practices of prayer and where those influences have come from. And as we talk through some of that, you may or may not recognise some of your own experience, some of your own story, some of your own journey. Uh, and then and then what we'll do is have a bit of a conversation about perhaps where you see yourself and where your own journey of prayer has taken you. For some of you, you might be at the beginning of it. Some of you, you might feel like, um, you left prayer on the side of the road somewhere. Um, and so all of that is fine. It's okay. Uh, so what, shall I pray? I feel like now you'll be analysing my words a little. I'm going to march around the building seven times and then <laughs> no, I'll, uh, I'll just pray and then we will uh, begin chatting.
God, thank you that uh, you are present very much like our breath that is close to us, that is in and out. Somehow you are present, close, unseen. As we talk and discuss, and as we share and are honest tonight, may we somehow find you present in our conversation. May we find you as a light to our path, as we desire, at the very least, to have some idea of what prayer might be for us. Amen. All right. Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to talk about, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, these, these different Christian traditions. I'm not going to cover every denomination in uh, the world. There are thousands upon thousands of them. Uh, so obviously I'm going to uh, generalise and, and share a few different perspectives uh, and then see where that takes us. Is that cool? Yeah? Okay. Um, so I thought I might start with, the, with a couple that some of you will be familiar with. Um, there's something called evangelicalism. It's a good time. Uh, now, depending on where in the world you are, depends exactly on the shape that it takes. Um, America's got a raging evangelicalism right now that's taken a pretty interesting shape. Um, but aside from that lest we mention his name. Um, I want to think about uh, the origins of what is now often called kind of the evangelical church, from which you get a lot of your uh, more contemporary Protestant denominations like, you know, Baptists and Presbyterians and, well, yeah, no, they're evangelical. Um, and a number of others, and has had an influence as well on a lot of contemporary, more charismatic um, experiences. And really, we go back to North America and Europe in particular uh, in the 17th, 18th century. Uh, you have had, historically speaking, uh, the Catholic Church pretty much in charge of Christianity for quite some time, running the show, sometimes getting a little bit mixed up with power and, and politics. Um, and bloodshed, but pretty much ran the show for the first 1100, well, no, after the first two or 300 years, pretty much running the show for the next seven or 800 years, till there was a split between the West and the East. And so you had the Catholic Church in the West, and in the East you had the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, initially the split was over an obscure uh, phrase in the Nicene Creed. Um the three words and the sun. There's a big uh, argy-bargy between the East and the West as to whether those three words should be allowed in the Nicene Creed, <laughs> called the filioque clause. It's a great conversation. Um, <laughs> it's all about does the Holy Spirit proceed from just the Father or does the Holy Spirit also proceed from the Son? Uh, and in the end, the East and the West could not agree on this issue. And so they split themselves apart. Uh, also some political power plays and things going on at the same time. Very rarely are such massive disagreements over small doctrinal matters 
just about the theology. They're usually also about power. Anyway, the East and the West um, split, and so for some time there were two popes, and you know you had um, both with the true church. Eventually, over time, learning to accommodate each other. So from the East, you get things like uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox churches, that kind of Eastern Orthodoxy, and then you have the Catholic Church. 16th century, you get the Reformation, the Protestants uh, arise. So uh, you have Luther and Calvin and a number of others. And so you have this protest against, in particular in the West, so the Reformation is a Western uh, phenomenon in the first instance, protesting against the Catholic Church. So you have the Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church. Uh, In England, you have the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which then in the places like North America is called Episcopalian. Um, You with me so far? Yes? Little, Little historical summary. Um, skipping a few details, but that's fine. Uh, and so you've had this Protestant Reformation taking place, uh, spreading across parts of the world, uh, still, if you like, um, carrying with it many of the vestiges of Catholicism, uh, albeit trying to modify and get away from some of some aspects of the Catholic Church. So uh, Calvin, for example, was very big on, still very big on word and sacrament. This was what defined the church. So sacramental life, which was important to Catholics, sacraments like confession and baptism and Eucharist and so on, was still very important within certain aspects of the Reformation. In the sort of 17th and 18th century, you get the emergence of something that's often called the Great Awakening. So if you look across, especially Europe and and North America, uh, you get this growing emphasis on heart religion, so whereas with the Catholic Church, really it was a matter of you were born into the church, you were, you were you know, baptised into the church as an infant that put you in, and really you were in until you did something that would get you out, excommunicated. Uh, so if you were born into a Catholic family, then you were sort of folded into the Catholic Church by default. Um, what starts happening with the Great Awakening is uh, this surge of people essentially choosing to convert to Christianity in, in a particular kind of way. And in one that was, a lot of it was the language around the heart. So you get these revivalist preachers, people like George uh, Whitfield, Whitfield, Whitefield, Whitfield, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, a number of uh, Oswald Chambers, all sorts of these different kind of revivalist preachers who would travel across and just, they would run these huge meetings, they would, pitch a giant tent somewhere um, often, uh, run a big meeting, have um, some kind of call to repentance and to conversion, uh, giving your heart to Jesus, which is not really the kind of language you find in the earlier tradition of the Catholic Church and even the early Reformation. Uh, People talking about sort of giving their heart to Jesus or the language of a personal relationship with Jesus is not language that's particularly familiar to the way people talked about their faith up until this time. Um, But this becomes uh, the uh, seedbed, if you like, of the modern evangelical church. Uh, A lot of focus on on the Bible, obviously, uh, but also on conversion of the heart, letting Jesus into my heart, perhaps is some of the language, or um, developing this personal relationship with Jesus, giving my heart to, to Jesus. Uh, in the ninth, mid kind of 1800s, um, 
you get the development of altar calls and things like that, right? You know, where everybody comes forward to give their life to Jesus as a, as a physical symbol. So these things are relatively recent, um, but are a pretty common feature of modern evangelical Christianity. Now, what does all that have to do with prayer? Well, I think one of the things you see come through the evangelical church is this emphasis on this sense of personal relationship uh, that I can have with Jesus. It's also happening at a particular point in history where we are beginning to talk about, um, I guess in philosophical terms, the autonomous self, right? the, which really is just the idea that I am my own person and I can make my own way in the world and decide things for myself. Um, so rather than thinking about uh, human beings as embedded within communities, thinking about us as we, uh, we begin to think of ourselves, especially in the West, as I. And uh, what that means is language of faith and language of spirituality and language of prayer becomes very much my relationship with, with God. And this language of relationship, this language of um, Jesus in my heart. I remember, <laughs> oh, a funny story just occurred to me. Sometimes I said to Hannah after I uh, shared some things this morning, I was like, I probably shouldn't say everything that just comes into my mind when I'm up in front of a group, but I do remember. Um, one time I'd been involved in launching a charitable trust and <laughs> there was a real concerted effort to make it a charitable trust that was focused on work in the community and perhaps was less, just, you know, less officially kind of churchy and uh, the mayor at the time John Banks was invited to come along and open you know officially open the trust um, and so he was asked to speak and he obviously he knew there were some religious people in the crowd so he put on his best uh, Christ, evangelical Christian thing and he got up and he says you know what really matters when it comes down to it have you got Jesus in your heart <laughs> and he went on this big speech for about 10 minutes uh, and we were all like, oh, that's not exactly the vibe we were going for, actually. But it was very funny. Jesus in your heart. That was his big thing. Uh, every sentence pretty much landed on that little phrase. Um, and that's a very kind of, that's, that's the modern evangelical idea. You've got Jesus in your heart. Um, and it shapes, for many people, the way that they think about prayer. This relating to Jesus. I... Um, has spoken to many people over the years who have been like, I just, sometimes I just wish Jesus would come and sit on the end of my bed and I could have a chat with him, you know. Which is a very understandable feeling. And it's shaped the way, uh, for a lot of people, they, they think about prayer. Does that make sense to you? So I'm going to talk through some of these and, and you may recognise yourself in some aspects of these stories and, uh, and that's okay. Because actually what we find is often we think, oh, I've just developed a really good, you know, I've, I've just learned how to do this like everybody has, not recognising the way that different traditions have actually shaped and influenced some of the big ideas that, that form the way we think about interacting with God. All right, now on the, uh, if we want to turn up evangelicalism to, to 11, um, then we get Pentecostalism. Uh, and, and that... Um, in the early 20th century, adds a, a different kind of layer to the evangelical idea, and that's this language of encounter. 
And so I think it's something that's coming through the Great Awakening and through that kind of revivalism of, of, of the 18th, 19th centuries. Um, but in particular in the Pentecostal church, uh, there's a real central emphasis on the experience of the Spirit. And so um, if you don't know the story, uh, depends how you tell the story. The way Americans always tell the story is that uh, Pentecostalism began there. Um, in Azusa Street, 1906, an African-American man actually by the name of William Seymour um, started in a, in a home and moved to a church on Azusa Street where everyone sat on hay bales and I think they had, a, they had church meetings every night for three and a half years. Um, so that sounds like an intense time. But look, they had no TV, so. No Netflix, no iPhones. Prohibition, maybe. Um, now, there are a few things about this kind of revival. Now, Azusa Street's not the only example of it. You had things happening in, you know, the Welsh revival and you had things in India and Australia and even little, little New Zealand. Uh, this kind of phenomenon popping up where people were having these quite dramatic experiences. With God. Now, what that adds to the language of prayer in particular is the language of this desiring of some kind of dynamic encounter or experience. So, if you listen to it, and I, this is so, this is the tradition I grew up in, as I think many of you know by now with all of my stories. But, you know, if you, um, if I was to recite some of the prayers that I prayed when I, you know, when I was right in the mix, um, even being involved in like in, in speaking or in uh, music and all that kind of stuff, the prayers were always around, uh, God, we want to encounter you, we want to experience you, we want to meet with you, we want this to be a time where you speak to us and we speak to you. And all of that language is language of experience, language of encounter. Um, and that means prayer has a particular emphasis to it in that way. And um, And I remember having these very, you know, very vivid, earnest sort of times of prayer for me as a young Pentecostal kid, really wanting to and sort of trying to figure out what was the key to having that kind of experience. Um, how passionate could I get to unlock that door whereby I might suddenly have that experience that I really wanted. And occasionally I would bump into some experiences that seemed pretty potent. And now a lot of times I would lash myself for whatever reason I hadn't hadn't achieved said encounter. Um, over the course of the 20th century, a few things have happened to, to that movement. One was the emergence then within Pentecostalism of um, faith preaching. Um, so people like Kenneth Hagin, for example, who were building on... So uh, early 20th century, there was a guy called E.W. Kenyon, uh, who wrote a number of little books and interpreted prayer in terms of the fact that there's this kind of legal um, situation whereby, you know, Satan has rights to the world, but through Christ we gain rights to the world. And so then when we, have, when we pray, we are able to take hold of the rights that we have. Um, and if you finish your prayer in Jesus' name, then that kind of is the, is the legal seal, you know, that makes your prayer work. Um, 
And that kind of language got picked up by faith preachers like Kenneth Hagin and then later on Kenneth Copeland and his mini jets. Um, when, um, only three? Oh, okay, sorry. Three's not that many actually, is it? I just feel like it's two more than one needs, you know? I sold, no, you sold a couple off? I mean, I can understand one jet. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, oh, yes, yeah, so I think um, Kenneth Copeland and, and maybe it was Jesse DePlantis or someone else were, were talking about uh, they, couldn't, they, couldn't, they couldn't fly um, yeah, on a public airline because of all the demons that, they, that might um, jump on them. And they're you know, preachers of the word and they have to be protected. Um, look, so, yeah, yeah no, we're fine to get the demons. That's right, Jason. We probably carry some of them, to be fair. Um, look, now, <laughs> that's like the massive extreme end of the scale, right? And, and, and I don't think the purpose of tonight is for us to all, well, unless we all figure out that prayer to pray to get us a jet. Huh? Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. Um, anyway, the, the, the faith preachers that kind of emerge in the mid-20th century, Oral Roberts was, was a, another one who kind of, uh, in the mid-20th century, emerges at this time. A lot of them coming out of North America initially, uh, where this kind of, you pray for something, and if you have enough faith, then it will be yours. So that kind of language becomes very familiar with them, the kind of faith preaching. Later on, that turns into, initially it was very focused on healing, and then over time becomes increasingly focused on, well, if God can heal your body, he can also heal your bank account. So it becomes increasingly focused on prosperity in more recent times. So you have something called the prosperity gospel, uh, which is essentially, or sometimes called the health and wealth. You know, If your prayer life is good enough with enough faith, then God will give you the things that you want. Now, it kind of when you use examples of, of, of jet planes and mansions and stuff, it sounds all a bit ridiculous, but... It is interesting, I think, the way in which that narrative has still impacted, even for people who aren't necessarily playing for jet planes, praying for jet planes, uh, the way people expect prayer to work, perhaps. Uh, there's a wonderful little book by someone called Kate um, Bowler. Bowler? Bowler? I'm not sure. Um, I first read her work when I was writing my PhD, and, I had, and she did her PhD on the prosperity gospel in America and its kind of origins and developments and where it came from. And then she, um, and so she kind of, you know, spent a lot of time analysing it and, and, and critiquing it and, and pulling it apart. And then in her 30s has been diagnosed with terminal cancer as a young mum. And one of the things she realised in the process of facing her own sickness is that even though she looked at the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth gospel of those people out there and said, I don't adhere to that. When it came to her own illness and sickness, she suddenly was confronted with, but I shouldn't have this because I've got a good relationship with God and spirit. And, and what she realised was that even without the very extreme version of that, um, she had subtly still very much held to that kind of view of the world. So she wrote a great little book called um, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. Mm. But it's a very it's a it's essentially a memoir of her of her wrestling with um with that process of of coming to terms with her diagnosis. So um she's managing currently her her cancer treatment, which is 
good. So she's still with us uh, and writing. And she's got a podcast called Everything Happens, um, which is well worth a listen. She interviews lots of interesting people. That's an aside, anyway. Um, is this making sense so far? Roughly? All right, so we've got these, we've got this kind of evangelical. Uh, I'm not saying these are these are good or bad necessarily, although you'll probably pick up the jet planes thing I'm not so fond of. But uh, less than trying to pull all of this apart, I'm interested in how do these different traditions inform the kind of language that we use and the way that we think about prayer and the practices we engage in. What is it that we are wanting to do when we pray? Uh, what is it that we are wanting from God or for ourselves or whatever it might be? And, and where do we get those uh, impulses and desires from? Okay. So... Um, in my own journey, it's probably been evangelical and Pentecostal or charismatic traditions that have shaped a lot of my prayer. And a lot of that's very spontaneous prayer. So because it's relational, uh, the way you pray within these traditions is that you do what I did at the beginning of tonight, which is just sit here and just say a prayer. Whatever comes into my mind, uh, I'm going to pray. You know, that's the way I relate to God. And I've probably spent plenty of my life thinking that's the only way there is to pray. You sit down and, and you pray and when you run out of things to say, you're like, oh, I thought I had more than three minutes in me, but apparently I don't. Uh, or whatever it might be, you know. Sometimes if you're really doing well, then you work yourself up for a good half hour. Um, so <laughs> that's not the only way to pray, funnily enough, and it's not the only tradition of prayer that there is in the world in Christianity. Uh, so I want to touch on a few others and see what we might notice about them. So one of them you find, I think predominantly it's probably true within historical Catholicism and also Eastern Orthodoxy, um, but are also, I think, growing a little, having a resurgence at the moment, and that's a contemplative prayer or also kind of a mystical approach to prayer. So when we start to talk about things like contemplative prayer or a mystical approach to prayer, we are talking about this experience of communion or union with God in some kind of way. That the aim of prayer here is not necessarily a jet plane um, or to change a circumstance in particular, but might be to find union with God in some kind of way, to find a sense of centeredness, to find a sense of stillness, a sense of coming back to myself and finding God present there. Um, so... Um, in the Catholic Church that I mentioned earlier, uh, as things became increasingly politicised in the Catholic Church, so in the 4th century, Constantine, who's the emperor, uh, decides Christianity is the way for all of us to go. And so Christianity goes from being quite a marginal persecuted movement to suddenly being the religion of, of the empire. And what that means is over the next few hundred years, things become quite heavily politicised for the church and you sort of have, you know, people assassinating popes so that they can become the pope and, you know, it's all, it's all sort of cloak, literally sort of cloak and dagger stuff and popes getting stabbed and new popes, you know, emerging and it's Game of Thrones but with popes. Um, now, what kind of happens, because there are people within the church, who are still deeply interested in meaningful connection with God. So you have uh, sometimes what's called the desert uh, fathers, although there are also women as well, but obviously uh, for important purposes, they need to get left out of most of those stories. Um, 
patriarchy. Uh, and what you have are, are the kind of traditions that emerge really usually out of the main centres, out somewhere in the, in the, in the desert usually, uh, where you get the monastic traditions emerge, so the, the monasteries and the monks uh, and other mystics and contemplatives who separate out from the heavily politicised power plays that are going on kind of in the hierarchies of church. And this is where a lot of the good theology is done and it's also where a lot of the, the prayer uh, tradition that we draw on now was, was formed in many respects. Um, so you get people like, and a lot of this happens in Egypt, um, Palestine, Syria, uh, this part of the world, the north of Africa there, where people like Augustine came from and others. So fourth century is Constantine, and then really um, after that, yeah, you get, uh, because a sense, if you, if, if you like, um, everybody was out on the edges before that. Um, so once, once, once Christianity gets brought to the centre of the empire, then there are those who over time come to be troubled by what's going on there and move out to the edges to try and rediscover some kind of meaningful, authentic spirituality or faith. Um, so you get people like, even, even those like Augustine and others are, are really in that category. So they're theologians and, and, and also mystics who are doing work um, outside of some of those power plays, even if they get drawn in from time to time. Um, you have Gregory, He's one of the Cappadocian fathers. Uh, and then you go through the Middle, middle, middle Ages and you get people like uh, Hildegard of Bingen. Bingen? Bin, Bingen? That's how you say it? It's Europe somewhere, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, Julian of Norwich. Uh, Meister Eckhart. Uh, you get a number of um, people like that. Then you go through after the Reformation, still that's kind of happening within the Catholic Church. So St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. Uh, a number of these figures, um, I've actually started a Facebook group for formation, by the way, uh, kind of uh, that I can, um, although I think I can somehow only invite people into it who I have some Facebook connection with. Anyway, I've added a few of you, so we'll try and get everybody added because then we can chuck up some of these names and resources and links and connections for you so that um, if you want to be connected to what's, what, some of what we're talking about, then you can do that. Um, because there are some great resources, even just you know, going and reading about St. John of the Cross, and he's the one who talks very much about the dark night of the soul, for example, and uh, some of that stuff. So there's some wonderful resources we can draw on in this kind of tradition. And what develops in this tradition is this much more contemplative mystical approach to prayer, as I say, to union with God. Um, Thomas Merton, more recently, uh, is perhaps one of the more contemporary examples. And then in recent times, you'd, people like Richard Rohr and Thomas Keating and, and others. Um, let me read this quote from Thomas Merton, which gives you a sense of the way in which he's thinking about things. At the centre of our being is a point of nothingness which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal from which God disposes our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our own mind or the brutalities of our own will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. It is like a pure diamond blazing with the invisible light of heaven. 
It is in everybody, and if we could see it, we would see these billions of points of light coming together in the face and blaze of a sun that would make all the darkness and cruelty of life vanish completely. I have no program for this seeing. It is only given, but the gate of heaven is everywhere. So uh, in this kind of mystical tradition, the idea is that somehow, uh, rather than, I think, a God out there that you're trying to draw down in some kind of way, get to intersect or intervene or to reach down and change something or move something. In the contemplative mystical tradition, it's more about a recognition of this sense of something that is uh, this divine presence that's found within each person. And so a lot of the journey of contemplative or mystical prayer is a, is a journey inward, not just uh, trying to reach outward, if that makes sense. Yeah? Um. Here's a prayer of Thomas Merton. We might pray this at the end. I quite like this prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. It's an interesting prayer. So that's quite different from um, Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis, you know. Uh, which is to say, <laughs> you can see totally different um, frameworks, if you like, for thinking about God and also for thinking about what prayer is and what purpose prayer is, has for us, uh, what function it has in our lives. Uh, so what you'll find within this tradition is often an emphasis on stillness. Uh, you also see some of this kind of language in the Quaker tradition. So if anyone's bumped into a Quaker, yeah. Uh, one of the most famous, uh, well, I don't know if he's famous, in Christian, you know, authorship. Is anyone really famous? I'm not sure. But um, uh, Richard Foster, who comes from the Quakers tradition and has written extensively on prayer. Might post up a couple of links to his prayer books as well. He's got some uh, books where he talks through a lot of the different spiritual practices of stillness and silence and solitude and meditation and, and ways of practicing and engaging in, in those things that can be helpful uh, for us. So uh, a lot of it is on interior transformation, union with the divine, stillness, um, and so on. All right? So that's... The Apostle Paul. Paul. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I think there is... There is a format Paul is often following in his letters. So, you know, in a New Testament letter, for example, you start with a greeting and then you do a prayer and thanksgiving report. Um, and so you'll see in heaps of Paul's letters, because this is the first century tradition, 
Grace and peace to you. Uh, or Paul, a, a slave or an apostle or you know, some kind of title he would give himself to the church in wherever it is, grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would say, I give thanks for you to, to God above for your great faithfulness to the thing. And I pray that you might, you know, so it's, it's what's often called a prayer and thanksgiving report. Um, which sounds kind of, it sounds like a missionary's, you know, presentation. Um, and this is where I went, you know. Uh, but um, a lot of the, so some of that language we get is following this quite formal sort of process of, of the way in which, and, and what you would do is in your prayer and thanksgiving report, you would, essentially tag the things that you're going to talk about in your letter. So if you read those first little prayers, they often summarise the themes that he then goes on to talk about in the rest of his letter. So sometimes that's what's going on in those letters. At other times, it's interesting, Paul is varied, I think. I think it seems to me that at times he's more sure of himself than at other times. Um, and, and even the way in which he wrestles with his own weakness on occasion, his thorn in the flesh, um, some of that language suggests he's there's some aspects of his journey that he that he struggles to make sense of, uh, and then and and sometimes speaks quite mystically. Sometimes no one's you know. I love Peter's letter where he says Paul writes about some very complicated things that I, not many of us can understand. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that that's in the Bible too. You know, I think it's great. Um, uh, Certainly there was a sense of conviction about certain aspects of what he was doing, yeah. So maybe he wouldn't pray that specific prayer all of the time. Um, I do think that, the, without setting myself up as the expert on these matters, um, the location of your life does determine a little bit the way that you pray. So um, when you're on a road and all options are available to you, um, trying to figure out where to go and what to do is sometimes a little more difficult when you're sitting in the bottom of a Roman prison. Um, then <laughs> then uh, there's probably not a, lot point, not a lot of point praying about sort of, um, God, would you lead me on the right path as I travel on my journeys, you know? Um, and so what he does, in, so in Philippians, for example, he writes from a, from a, from a jail cell, you know, uh, and says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And has this wonderful mystical uh, ability to transcend his experience, at least in his letter. I'm sure he had his tough days sitting in the bottom of that cell, though, that don't, doesn't come through so much in the, in the glorious letter writing. Um, okay, let's touch on a few more of these and then we can, we can have some reflection. Um, if you're in more of a mainline Protestant church, like something like the Anglican Church or the Church of England or the Episcopalian Church, all sort of related to one another, the head of whom is the Queen, of course, uh, then you might follow something like the Book of Common Prayer, which have a set of written liturgical prayers for all sorts of occasions and practices. So you might have your morning prayers and your evening prayers and your, your Wednesday prayers and your Sunday prayers, and it will even... The Book of Common Prayer will say this is what the preacher should preach on on Sunday. That will, so, you know, I was at a systematic theology conference. You know, whew, tell you what, what a time! Uh, the people really got the people going, and um, there's all these systematic theologians in, in New Zealand. We were sitting around, you know, in their academic presentations, and then somebody got up and said, "Well, you know, as the you know." As the, the reading for Sunday, of course, was such and such, and there were Presbyterians there and Anglicans and all these others, all who follow the, the liturgy of the, um, 
the Book of Common Prayer. And so they were like, ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. We talked about that on Sunday, you know, and, something, and, and I was like, huh? I think we just talked about whatever God was saying, which shows, you know, the, 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 the Pentecostal charismatic uh, motif of when you preach on Sunday, you, you say, God, what should I talk about? You know, which if you're in, say, like a mainline Protestant church, it's not really, not necessary. You might say, what angles shall I take? But the text, the topic is, is kind of provided for you by the tradition, by the liturgy. Uh, and so you have all sorts of prayers for all sorts of occasions. Uh, I was reading in the book of, I was reading in the English one today because the English one's fantastic because it's so English, um, and you know there's thanks for the Queen and protect her and her and William and Charles and everybody else, uh, and then there's prayer for like a woman who's just given childbirth, just and the instructions of what she must do uh, once she is ready, she can come into the church and come and kneel at the front, and then she must pray these words, you know, and God, thank you for saving me from the the risk and travail of childbirth and I dedicate myself back to thee and, you know, it was all tremendous. Um, What you see within, though, the Book of Common Prayer, what it does is it connects people to a rhythm of practices. And so rather than, I think about it in contrast to the more spontaneous approach to prayer, which is I'm just going to get up and pray what I feel, uh, which sometimes brings with it a pressure of what am I going to pray? When it comes to this kind of tradition, you don't really face that stress so much because you're going to pray this. When we gather in church, we're all going to pray this together. Um, maybe when you go home, you've got a book of common prayer to follow. You might pray that prayer in the morning and in the evening. And so the hard work of what to pray is kind of done for you. What you do is you then fall into a rhythm of the church. Uh, again, I'm sure it has its strengths and weaknesses. Um, and there's often an emphasis on doctrine in those prayers as well. So those prayers in the Book of Common Prayer have an emphasis through them of making sure all of the theology is ticked off at the same time. I did enjoy this. Uh, Here followeth the litany or general supplication to be sung or said after morning prayer upon Sundays, Wednesdays and Fridays. And so then I say a, a line and then you repeat it after me. You ready? O God, the Father of heaven, Have mercy upon us miserable sinners. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh. oh God, the Son, Redeemer of the world, have mercy upon us miserable sinners. I won't make you keep repeating it. Oh God, the Holy Ghost, proceeding from the Father and the Son, filioque clause, I'll break away, uh, have mercy upon us miserable sinners. Oh God, O holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons and one God, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners, and so on. Um, Now what you can see there is they are working through Trinitarian doctrine in the prayer. We're talking about Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then all three are one. And we obviously are locating ourselves correctly as miserable sinners in relation to this Trinitarian God. Um, Now the language of that I just found kind of humorous because miserable sinners is not usually the way we probably gather and pray as an edge community week to week. Um, I think the idea of that kind of language is to bring yourself into this place of, of kind of, of humility before God. Um, but you can see here there's this emphasis on doctrine and belief and then entering into a rhythm of the church. So we follow some aspects of the church calendar here, for example, but really we just dabble in the rhythm of the church compared to something like following the Book of Common Prayer, which would take us on a deep dive into following the tradition 
of of the church and its rhythms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So those traditions emerge uh, in the church before everyone's sitting there with Bibles and notes and 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 all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So a lot of the oral traditions of the call and response within those liturgies is because the people would gather and most of them didn't have access to any kind of written material um, during during the week. So the rhythm was shaped by the clergy, shaped by those who facilitate the church experience for the common people. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, a couple more to briefly mention and then we can have a bit of discussion. Is that all right? Yeah? Um, and I'll, I'll touch on these only really briefly. Uh, one is... Perhaps in more recent times, something called missional Christianity, um, kind of uh, in tandem with something that got phrased for a while as the emerging church, but I'm not sure um, if it ever emerged. Um, but uh, the idea of missional Christianity was to to essentially change that, and I think in many respects it's a reaction to evangelicalism in particular. So most missional Christians came out of the evangelical movement. And really it was about a change in direction of prayer. So a lot of uh, what missional Christianity is about is saying, not God, can you get involved in my life? It's God, what are you up to and how can I get involved in that? So it tries to flip the direction around, if you like. So instead of these are the things that I need, these are the things that I want, this is what's going on in my life, God, would you come and do things in my life? The prayers in this kind of tradition get shaped, which is a very recent tradition, get shaped much more in a sense of, God, what are you up to in the world? Where are you at work? Um, open my eyes to essentially see that and so that I might get involved in it um, and get it. So that's an attempt to, I think, reverse the narcissism that's probably crept into some aspects of um, contemporary personal um, prayer, if you like. Maybe narcissism is too strong a word, but you know, you know. Um, and the last one I want to mention is liberation theology. And uh, is anyone familiar with that phrase? Um, liberation theology in particular, well, in first instance probably emerged in Latin America in the 60s, 70s, um, and emerged out of the experience of the poor. And so you, uh, and initially among the Catholic Church, uh, so you had uh, someone like Paulo Freire who, who wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, um, which was really about how do we... They, they were under all sorts of violent and totalitarian regimes and they saw the church as often being complicit in that power and oppression of the people. And so they sought to um, talk about faith from the perspective of the poor. So uh, in liberation theology, you get uh, this language of God essentially has a preferential option for the poor. So God is particularly disposed to the poor. So when they read the scriptures, they read the scriptures from the perspective of how does this speak to the condition of those who are in poverty and those who are oppressed? Um, so Leonardo Boff, for example, who's a, a Latin American liberation theologian, um, when he's talking about the Lord's Prayer, uh, they the, in liberation theology you get this emphasis on orthopraxy, not just orthodoxy. So orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is about action. 
And they'd say, in the church, and liberation theology's critique would be in the church, there's been lots of talk about belief, but the action has not been good for the poor. Yeah, absolutely. So the modern kind of social justice language in the church, I think, has its roots pretty much in, in the liberation theology of Latin America in the first instance, then African-American liberation theology, um, and, and others. So uh, Leonardo Boff, who was influenced, you know, by, by Scripture and by Marx, I think it's probably fair to say, uh, when he reads the Lord's Prayer, and something like, liberate us from evil, uh, this is what Leonardo Boff says about uh, liberate us from the evil one. He says, the evil one today is embodied in an elitist, exclusivist social system that has no solidarity with the great multitudes of the poor. This evil one slyly creeps into our minds and makes the heart insensitive to the structural inequities that he has created. Um, so Boff essentially says the evil one is capitalism. That's what Boff says, right? Now, um, that's the point of sharing that is not to turn this into a big conversation about capitalism. Uh, as much as to say the contemporary emphasis on prayer as embodied justice and embodied social action has its roots in, to some degree in the liberation theology that came out of Latin America and then, um, and then other parts of... Um, uh, tends to, liberation theology tends to emerge amongst oppressed communities and says, let's look at this from the angle of those who are in oppression rather than from the angle of those who have the power. Right. Um, and you can see that has an emphasis on the way some people are thinking about their spirituality and therefore their prayer. What is prayer unless it is embodied action? Um, yeah. So what have we... It's covered a lot of ground just then, haven't we? Um, and... The idea here, I guess, is to say, do as we're talking about this, we talked about evangelical kind of personal relationship with Jesus, uh, Pentecostal charismatic desire for experience and encounter, which then also became very much a God, can you bless me and give me the things that I that I want and need? Um, then there's the more contemplative mystical tradition, uh, the liturgical tradition. Uh, and then more missional and liberational themes. I guess I'm just interested, maybe in the first instance we can have some conversation at your table. That might be a place to start. Or would you rather have it all together? Hmm? All together. A vote for all together, okay. Um, as you think about those different traditions, um, where do you see the majority of your experience? Um, and do you think that's changed over the course of your life? Do you see yourself shifting and changing in relation to the different emphases that come through in that? Is there, what, is, what is your kind of response to what we've been talking about and to these different traditions? What do you think has impacted your way of understanding prayer the most? And what do you think about that? People who said all together have to start. Oh, yeah. The I'm, I relate to the mystical prayer. I've been a guy. I've been supporting. I've, he's Catholic, and we go to Catholic mass once a month. And I'm not Catholic, but I quite enjoy the 
meditative part of a mass and yeah, the going going within in order to connect to something bigger. Mm. Yeah. And that's probably changed from a more evangelical kind of yeah. Cool. Thanks. My early years would have been Church of England, and I went to a Church of England school as well. Um, but it was, when I think back on it now, it was the lack of understanding about the, the liturgy, um, and there was no meaning in it for me. It was just all by rote, and it just seemed pointless. Um, I guess, especially by the time, you know, late teenager and all that is, you... You're starting to question different things. You know, it was what I desired and wanted, but I didn't understand. And then I was introduced to more the Pente Baptist slash sort of more Pentecostal charismatic environment. That just took me onto a whole different trajectory at that point in time. Um, and then I've ended up here, which is quite different again. And I've been really introduced to the contemplative, but what's I found fascinating in that um, was it brought back brought meaning into the liturgy and into that tradition. What I also found fascinating was as much as within the Pentecostal way of praying, and I just dread to think some of the prayers, um, spare me, but um, how in that environment, and maybe that's off, off from prayer, but how we used to almost dish the traditional and yet it had become a traditional way in the Pentecostal, the way we prayed, because that was the only way to pray. And yet, so in a sense, that it became a tradition without us even really acknowledging it as such. Um, yeah, and how I've done this, not quite a full circle, but because it's different, it's moved on. But it's quite a nice way to um, approach life through the contemplative and introduced to those that have done the faith have been in faith for centuries ago and how God inspired and moved and worked in their life I think that was quite that was quite a profound understanding so obvious really crumbs but that was um there was something that was in the you know 200 years, three, 400, 600,000 years ago, these people had a faith in God. So could that be wrong? I suddenly realised, no, of course it wasn't. So what is it about their faith that kept them alive? Yeah, anyway. It's interesting in, that, in the more contemporary kind of church that, cause that I grew up in where tradition was kind of like, the enemy in many respects, you know. Tradition was the thing you had to avoid at all costs um, because you would become dry and, and dusty and irrelevant. Yeah, that's right. Um, no spirit. And, and in many respects, because Pentecostal kind of spirituality was birthed from from people who, for whom um, they were really excluded in many respects from, from um, access to the kind of formal... Christianity, you know, even when you look in New Zealand when the missionaries came and many Māori who converted who then wanted to become, you know, priests and, and they were told, you know, well, you've got to learn, you've got to do three years of New Testament Greek before you can 
um, you know, come and come formally in, into the church. Well, for for a Maori in 1843, it wasn't necessarily a realistic thing, you know. So, um, so it's probably no surprise that something like Pentecostalism, for example, emerged among um, African American and um, Mexican and other marginal communities in the US in the early 20th century for whom tradition represented all of the power structures that they had no access to. Uh, and instead this dynamic of the spirit that was available to them personally and presently in the moment was very very potent and very powerful. Um, interestingly, I guess what's, what that has left within the Pentecostal type church is this kind of um, antipathy to any kind of tradition and a desiring to throw the whole thing out because it's all dry and, and dusty and irrelevant and kind of losing something I think in, in the process maybe understandably in the first instance but has a problematic thing to it over time yeah because the trouble was that tradition was always a threshold for what you might call a new move of the spirit that was the very thing that sort of prevented it tradition prevents the move of the spirit yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's mm. theory you know and every, every now and again there's another way that's Another move, which which is sort of terminology from the sixties and seventies, and you know some people would say, well, like, the truth is not a little bit of truth. It's just a playback, but we lost something. So the kind of the um, yes, within certain aspects of. Uh, especially in the 60s and 70s, I think this idea of restorationism, this idea that we are restoring the truths back to the church that have been lost for a long time. What that mentality, whilst perhaps again understandable as to why it arose, what it suggested was essentially there was the early church and then a big waste of time and then us. Uh, and and that's the mentality I think a, a lot of people had. And then so you had um, Peter Wagner and others who... and talk about the waves, so they talk about maybe Pentecostalism as the first wave and then there was the charismatic renewal I think as the second wave and then what was the third wave? Maybe, um, power, something or other was the third wave, a vineyard and stuff I think was the third or fourth, I can't remember how many, the waves get complicated after a while but um, anyway, yes? Um, there, there is one word that we haven't mentioned yet, it's an F word but it's not the one you think, it's fasting. Um, and um, when I grew up, um, the book about prayer that had the biggest impact on me was one about um, hunger and fasting, and I, I'm going to say it's strongly influenced by liberation theology, which is why I'm always puzzled by all these right-wingers in the church, because the church always seemed left-wing to me. Um, but that, But again, that's just my cultural... Um, history, but um, obviously I didn't keep it up. But um, the whole fasting thing, praying with your body um, idea, I think was a very valuable one, and I think still is. And um, maybe I missed it, but um, but I think that's that's a very valuable thing. Um, the other thought that I I had was. Um, as a thought experiment, I just wonder what it would be like if um, Kenneth Hagen and all of these high-profile preachers had to go on a silent prayer retreat where they weren't actually allowed to talk to each other 
but they had to be silent for, let's say, you know, a couple of weeks. That, that would maybe help them re-educate themselves or something. But, uh, but again, I know that there there is a tradition because I grew up with a lot of Catholics about um, silent retreats, and um, I know that that that's somehow related to the, um, you know, to to the the whole fasting and um, a lot, whole lot of mystic traditions, I think. But um, I think we we should take notice of all of those things. That they are good traditions, but um, we we forget about them. Yeah, I I thank you because it sort of your talk sort of was a review of my faith journey through life. You know, growing up in a Catholic town in a Catholic country, you know, part of the country to. Um, um, moving to England and sort of getting introduced to the Anglican Church and um, evangelicals and playing guitars to convert people in the street and leaflets and the music and then moving to South Africa and getting involved in liberation theology and in the civil war there and um, coming here and learning and I guess now in a phase of that whole connection with the land and that the land carries, has that spirituality and at the same time my interest these days is also that whole moving out of the head and into the body and the wisdom of the body, which I think a lot of these, the, 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 the traditions have not, I don't know, I don't know enough, but touched on, you know, as a Woman, my interest is being a woman, having a body, living in 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 in, in on a land, and and the demands of what we've done to the planet. Um, sort of, those are my questions these days. And another question, or something that sort of caught my interest over the years, and I I ask questions is the whole enneagram. And how we, the different personalities and how we all experience God differently and the importance of living in a community that allows the experience of God to be different. Because we are all different and yet we are together and how do you bring it all under one hat? Because I think what we, we all share some things and we all, you know, we each embody God as only we each can, and that really intrigues me, that meeting God in other people. Um, and how can we ro make room for that in our faith? It's interesting thinking about, yes, how different we are, and sometimes, you know, I sit around thinking, you know what, I'm sure what everybody would love to and do this, and then you ask a couple of people and they're like, sounds like the weirdest idea I've ever heard. Um and you realise just how, how different your own sense of the way you relate to God and think about your relationship to God and, and to other people and to your spirituality uh, can be. It's interesting to, to touch on the idea of fasting. Has anyone spent significant time in their life fasting? Oh, Greg? Is that Greg Burson? Oh, the prophet. Um, has anyone spent significant you know, efforts in their life to try and fast at times? Anyone? Any fasters in the room? Way back. <laughs> it's really gone out of fashion, hasn't it? Um, 
and and maybe in some sense because I think within the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, fasting almost became a way to twist God's arm. Uh, and so when you stop thinking about, which is probably I don't think the way you're talking about fasting, because within the contemplative tradition, it's it's not about that at all. But I think in more contemporary times, fasting has become about sort of well, if I fast for long enough, then then God will eventually have to cave, you know. Uh, and <laughs> which is a funny way to think about prayer, isn't it? Um, just if I oh, because the question you always have. When you stop your fast, inevitably you're getting hungry. Is did I ah oh, did I stop one day too early? If I'd have just hung on that extra day, would God have done the thing that I wanted? You know, uh, so you live with quite a sense of anxiety sometimes in relation to that. Um, but at the same time, sometimes what what fasting has been about for people has been about this deep desire for God in some kind of way, this desire for connection to or for union with God. Uh, and certainly, it's not just a mid to late 20th century Pentecostal phenomenon, but it's it's got its place within the contemplative and mystical traditions much more deeply. Um, yes. It does sharpen your attention, doesn't it? Does it? Well, <laughs> Tell us. Does me. <laughs> no, I haven't got a lot to say. But, um, yeah. Has it gone out of fashion? I suppose it has. Not really, but I think. Oh, it's like intermittent fasting, like a new diet. Oh, it's like a health kit. Yeah. 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 Cleansing the body. Um, of course, when we go back to um, you know those sort of like in uh, my experience, those very early Pentecostal days when I was first discovered God in a new way. Um, of course, we were encouraged to be baptised in the Spirit and to speak in tongues. So I, I still speak in tongues, and I, uh, and it's something that it's, it is still an important part of my, my prayer life. I just wondered if you'd like to comment on that. That sounds great. Comment on tongues in, in, in particular? Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, some would say that, that um, the, the text where Paul says, you know, the Spirit intercedes with us uh, with sighs too deep for words or with groans that cannot be expressed, that, that Paul is talking about speaking in tongues there. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Like I, yeah, I mean, I grew up immersed uh, with it around, and, I, and as a little kid, I mean, I'm not going to dispense answers necessarily, um, but I can talk about my experience, I suppose. You know, I grew up as a kid who desperately wanted to speak in tongues, and I, and I remember sitting in the car, you know, travelling to home from church, and my sister was like, okay, so what you do is you say, the cat sat on the mat. And then you say it over and over again, faster and faster and faster. And I was like, I was listening, the cat sat on the bed, the cat sat on the bed. Oh, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. Uh, <laughs> um, which was my experience as a child, you know, trying to trying to make sense of what was going on with, with speaking in tongues. Um, and, then, and, and, and then in my teenage years, having some quite profound experiences 
with God wherein uh, that's what you know tumbled out of me. And it's honestly, because as, as, um, as a person who's kind of probably analytical by nature sometimes, uh, <laughs> it's 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 the um it's a strange thing to do, isn't it? When you when you like, but but and yet I, I wonder whether there's something in it which which calls us beyond our kind of modern rational tendency to be able to explain everything away. You know, um, there's something in it that's a bit more mysterious and and mystical. For, for and, and maybe the language around it, or the or the way it's been prescribed for people, I think has sometimes been unhelpful. Um, you know, trying to sort of trying to make people, or sometimes making people feel very guilty for for not being able to, uh, or whatever. You know, and that's that kind of conversation I think has been quite unhelpful for people. But if we think about it as a as a kind of curious mystical experience, then I think it's. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. And I remember having this one, you know, I went up uh, for prayer at a meeting. And uh, and it just, it, it, uh, you know, tongues as a, as, a, as a thing just tumbled out of me in a, in a particularly excitable fashion, I guess you could say. And a fire alarm went off in the building. And uh, obviously just, it was the hotness of my spirituality, you see. Um <laughs> Some fire for Jesus, uh, and and so they had to evacuate. And there were like a thousand people in the room, and everybody was getting evacuated. And eventually, someone had sort of had to come and grab me, you know, and say, "You've got to leave the building." And I turned around and I just spoke to them in tongues, you know, because I was, I was, I was having, I was, uh, I was having some kind of almost almost uncontrollable experience um, that that was tumbling. And I still don't, I, I still, I can't, you know, explain it really. Yeah, it is, eh? Um, and I went and sat in, the, in a corner of the car park and spoke in tongues for an hour afterwards just by myself. And people would come up to me and try and have a conversation and I would sit there and just talk back to them in tongues and they would laugh and walk off. And uh, <laughs> a, very, a very, you know, um, unusual, mystical experience. Um, and, and I kind of like the idea that there are things that we can't package up nice and neatly and tidily and and put in our little boxes and, and get them to work. Clint, you want to say something about that? In, in which language? Oh, I just want to um, follow on from that. I pray in tongues too sometimes, but what something that I've discovered is the need um, to actually say something and so I think some what I've discovered is that um, sometimes when I pray and I have have stopped the um, temptation to slip into tongues and just sit there I find that my prayer um, just becomes non-verbal and I'm listening and I'm hearing and I'm communing with God in a way that is non-communicative and I and I I wonder sometimes whether I do pray in tongues because I feel the need to actually like there's something that without a verbal um, word um, enact something or make something happen and I wonder if that's a psyche that we live with that without us actually saying something or verbalizing something that something won't happen or God won't hear us or or that kind of thing um, and 
I've discovered that by actually not saying anything, I'm still praying. Prayer still comes out of me in some way, shape or form. Um, and that's not to discount tongues in general and what you were saying, but I think for me I've discovered that actually just sitting and being quiet and not verbalising anything can be just as significant um, a prayer um, as uh, not verbalising or trying to get something out of my mouth in some way, shape or form um, uh, is, is an interesting, has been an interesting learning for me. Awkward silence with God? Tongues, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, you know, I think sometimes within within certain tradition, yeah, within certain moments that I've been a part of, um, all of the space gets filled up with people sort of bellowing in, in tongues, and sometimes, um, and 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 sometimes that's been very lively and interesting, and other times, you know, you wonder should there could we have calmed down a little bit and. And, and just had a moment and, and paid attention and, and listened and, and leaned in. Um, and again, maybe that's the sense of, of when things become your one go-to thing, um, that's okay, but what if, we, you know, we can, if we can open uh, the walls a little bit, allow our spirituality to be enriched by opening ourselves up to multiple ways of, of thinking about how we pray, uh, that actually opens our horizons a little bit um, in all sorts of interesting and hopefully uh, helpful ways. Kath? I was going to say something similar. I think it's like, you know, if I just eat pizza all the time, then I'm only eating pizza all the time. And I think sometimes we need to pray according to what's going on or how we're feeling. So sometimes silent, sometimes speaking in tongues. Like for me, sometimes out loud with words that I know, sometimes by reading a scripture, sometimes by, it's like kind of anything and everything goes according to what's going on or how you're feeling or the moment. Like I think we just, prayer is something that I think all forms are okay, depending on what we need at the time and what's going on, rather than just kind of the one thing, like you were saying. Yeah, I really like that. And I really like your point about the different personality types um, because I was raised in a Baptist tradition but then in my teenage years went to a more kind of evangelical um, and I didn't realise how much I, I hated it until I <laughs> did something else because I think it's really um, um, maybe tended toward more extroverted people. Um, I'm a five on the Enneagram, so it's just my worst nightmare. Um, and I've been really enjoying um, sort of the mystic tradition of the Catholic Church, which I didn't know about until I read Richard Rohr. And I've always sort of viewed Catholicism as a very traditional, very rigid structure, but I've sort of discovered this whole new side of it, which is really amazing. And um, particularly the way Richard Rohr talks about it um, has sort of allowed me to go into a different yeah, contemplation and mysticism without intellectualizing it. Which has been cool. I think one of you know, um, this is not like pump up the Catholic Church night, because um, look, they have their own things to wrestle with. Some of them are big ones. Um, one of the advantages to not splitting into multiple Protestant pr protest churches, like the Protestants do, is that you're actually able to create space for diversity within the one tradition, um, to an extent. But but within the Catholic Church, you find these you know different streams and different emphases, 
Uh, and so there's room for the contemplative and mystical traditions as there's room for, for others. I think one of the challenges the Protestants, that we Protestants have to negotiate is that what tends to happen is if we want to add a new emphasis instead of finding a way to incorporate it, we start a new church with our new emphasis and then that becomes all about that thing until someone else comes along with another one and then they have to sp split off again. Uh, and so the the Protestant side of the diagram has become increasingly convoluted uh, and so you tend to get very particular streams within the Protestant church um, because every time someone comes up with a new way of doing something, they have to go and start a, a new community uh, or a new church or a new denomination or whatever it might be. So the challenge, I think, for the Protestant church in the 21st century is are we able to be communities that hold together that diversity? It doesn't mean we have to turn into a massive church Catholic again, but are we able to be communities where we're able to hold that diversity together and actually learn from one another and listen to one another? Um, and I hope that we can. Linda, final thought. Oh, I quite like the word ecumenical. So when people um, ask me what type of church edge is, um, and even though this isn't on a website, um, I'm comfortable with the word ecumenical because it kind of it invites and implies that we are open to drawing from a number of faith traditions. Um, and I think that's nice because we can then each of us with our different personalities, our different traditions and histories, um, stories, ways that we see the world, we can bring ourselves into the space and we don't have to feel like there's one way. And I think that personally think that that's something that's the church is being invited into Christianity to be broaden our horizons a little bit and go. We are ecumenical. Um, ecumenical means, um, and this is a prayer conversation because we're talking about all the different ways that we pray and the different styles. It means. Um, it refers to the efforts by Christians of different church traditions to develop closer relationships and better understandings. The term is often is also often used to refer to efforts towards the visible and organic unity of different Christian denominations of some form. And so I think it's 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 nice. It's kind of and it's a lovely word because often we have to fill out forms at what denomination and I'll go non, but then I will now add an ecumenical, depending on who I'm talking to. If I think somebody understands the term, I'll go there. If they don't think they don't, I might say non-denominational, but the idea is let's think outside of our squares, hold our own traditions and hold our own ways of being that are authentic to who we are, but be open as well. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, yes, you can. And this is this is great theory, <clears throat> and um, but prayer is actually very practical, and I'm, I'm sort of looking around this room and I'm thinking, who have I prayed with in this room? Margaret, Diane, nobody else. Oh, we did, yeah, once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was at Jeremy's place, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, but I'm, I'm I'm sort of thinking, you know, we we are. I mean, it's a, it's great to talk about the various aspects of prayer, but doesn't it come down to? Do we expect prayer to make a difference? 
in our lives. And um, so I'm just saying, it, it, not, not today, but would it be appropriate at some stage, if we're talking about prayer, perhaps we should do it. Uh, and, uh, and then I remind myself, well, that's probably one form of prayer. <laughs> this is an outrageous suggestion, Warren, that we should pray. <sighs> yes. Um, well, for me, I'm like, where do I start? Um, I grew up on Waikiki Island, so for me, we, we didn't go to church, but I still felt very connected to God through, I guess, just being immersed in nature and riding my bike through the streets and under the ocean, I just felt very drawn to something much greater than myself. Um, but gr growing up and sort of finding different ways to God through, yeah, I guess my first real introduction to the institution of Christianity, I guess, was like Easter camp. And that that I felt actually really opened a split in me of how I related to God. Um, and as I've grown and, and then came to Edge and, and sort of felt much more at home in that expression and connection back to like nature and the earth and all that kind of stuff. But even um, as I've grown more and had children um, and felt I've had to come more into my head, I've moved much more away from God or even knowing how to talk to him until more recently I, um, I've i got back into a, a dance practice. And I recently went on a retreat where um, it was about the four relational hungers, so solitude, um, connection with one other, belonging as a whole and then spirit or God um, and how you express that embodied in your body and it was really interesting to like because you have to take all of yourself into that like your mind your body your emotional state and to commune with God in that sense was really uh, well for me it took me back to being a girl and that and that freedom but also really highlighted a lot of like where I get stuck in my head of what I should pray, what, how do I um, come before God in a movement? What does that look like? Why, where am I afraid? And it, for me, it, it brought it alive in a much, I don't know, richer state. And then also to be in a room with, I think there was about 50 of us, dance, like movers and artists and whatever, um, who we didn't all, like, it's not a Christian thing. A lot of people probably come from more Buddhist tradition which I'm quite interested in actually but all these people were so alive in in this and I don't know their expression of God into spirit and it was really powerful like you're saying about like who have I prayed for but it was almost like all these people in that little light of who they are were moving and responding to God in a prayer-like way <clears throat> in their body without words to random music, there's people outside on the deck just like, and it was really powerful. And so for me, I feel like prayer has become um, not just something I feel like I have to say and get right, but um, more of a knowing or like where I'm at in terms of what's hindering me in my heart to to bring something to God. Why do I struggle to just sit 
and say one word to God. I recently tried to do that, this centering thing, and pick one word and just sit with that for like 10 minutes. I just, I couldn't do it. I was like, but yeah, I'm rambling. But anyway, so it's, yeah, I think like you're saying, there's different ways to do it. But um, for me, I've definitely benefited from a more holistic. And also going back to where I felt uninhibited as a child, um, connecting to something greater than myself and even connecting to others before I got indoctrinated or like before I found what I felt I should do, which went some against some of my own natural inclination. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. Thank you. It's, um, we really should, uh, what have we got, Clint? We've got Mexican? Yeah, we do. So we'll head towards an embodied experience of food shortly. Um, I do think in the West, in particular, our relationships with our, with our own bodies are very complicated. And we, have, we live as if we are our, the front, front of our brain. Uh, prefrontal cortex, thank you, that's the one. We live as if that's who we are, you know. Um, and and then I think the influence in part of Greek philosophy on early Christianity and then on Western thinking um, shaped an attitude towards the body that said the body in some way was, was the, the enemy or the hindrance or the thing that was in the way between you and God. And so the aim really is to to bypass the body as much as possible. And yet when you even look at the language, I mean, Christianity in its own way is really an, an Eastern tradition in its origins rather than um, a Western one. And um, the language of Scripture itself is a deeply embodied, both in its connection to the land and its connection to the, to the, to the body itself. Uh, so much of the language of prayer, even when you read the Psalms, is connected to the physical um, body. And... It's such an interesting experience. When I was learning um, Te Reo for a while, uh, suddenly we were singing and doing actions together in these classes. And I was like, I was so deeply uncomfortable. And, I, and which, was, which was kind of funny to me because I was like, I shouldn't be. Uh, and yet I found myself being uncomfortable doing these, you know, doing movement and, and song. And I, could do, I can do kind of song in large room full of people with loud music. Um, but in small room like this, if we were to suddenly just stand and sing, you know, suddenly we'd find a lot of awkwardness in the room. Um, to do that as a group of, you know, many of us shaped by a particular kind of way of being. But we are, we, I think generally we struggle to relate well to what it means to embody our faith, our spirituality, our connection to God. And the truth is we know nothing apart from our bodies. Um, yes just going off what you're saying like for me coming, I'm going to go back into dance again but um, what I found really incredible was you come into a space um, where people are equally open to that expression so almost that insecurity of what you are like it takes a while, but is gone. And what I found incredible is in that space, you get to know someone without talking. 
and how um, that brings you together and a knowing of someone so much deeper than you would with words. Quite, it's kind of intimate, but you know, and um, and for me as well to my train of thought's gone. It was good, I thought. Um, yeah, and so I think it, it became a real sacred space of just yeah, how you don't you know, and then for all of us to come in there and be open to it, it felt like the one of the most loving expressions I've ever experienced. Because it wasn't just about us and moving our bodies and doing cool dance moves and stuff. It was like it was a real expression of that soul place, of that and not saying that everyone has to come and dance, but you know. Anyway, I'm just saying what I'm trying to say is like without words our souls can speak so much and we can know one another and God, yeah, I don't know why I felt it. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, good. This brings us to practice. Uh, both, you know, both comments, both of those last comments bring us to practice. And so our next formation session in two weeks' time, we're going to be talking about different practices of prayer, um, and that's right. We're all going to come and dance together for an hour. No, <laughs> hour and a half. Um, no, I, we, we, I won't say that for fear that some of you might, you know, not come. Um, I was thinking about. I've been thinking about dance recently, partly because I have this. I have my own very complicated relationship with it, um, and hmm, with dance. And I was trying to think about why that was. And, and so I was thinking about the fact that I thought, oh, it's because I'm, I'm worried about how I look in front of other people. Until then I thought about dancing at home by myself and realised I was just as uncomfortable with the idea of dancing at home by myself as I was in front of other people, which made me realise that actually what I, my, my discomfort level is actually not with other people as much as it is with my own body. And I thought that was an interesting realization to have about myself um, which I have not yet you know gloriously overcome I'm not dancing my way from Monday to Saturday uh, and then but but I think it's an interesting conversation and, and dance is not the only way into the conversation of embodiment but um, next time what we're going to look at is today we've been looking at the different streams and traditions uh, next formation is looking at some of the different prayer practices and actually doing some of those together so um, That'll be good. Yeah? So we'll be praying together. Not that we, not that we haven't already, because to desire prayer is to, is to, is to pray, uh, etc. Um, but I think that'll be, a, that'll be a good time. So that's in two weeks' time. Cool? Okay. Our prayer tonight is going to be eating. Our, our closing prayer. I was going to read the Merton prayer, but I, no, I think we've moved on from there. Our prayer uh, will be to eat together. Uh, so... If you can't stay for food, then you don't get to pray. <laughs> but please do, no, jokes. Uh, do stick around. Um, it's just a koha for dinner. Uh, whatever you can slide through the FPOS machine or drop in the bucket. Uh, or what is it? Container? Tray? Bowl. Thank you. That will take your money. Uh, Clint's prepared some Mexican food for us, so please stick around and do that. Um, and hang out. Continue the conversation. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for coming out.